Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Okay. Welcome back. So this meditation practice sits within a much larger context in the Buddha's teachings. Uh, The teachings themselves are a way of life. It's a way of understanding ourselves, our relationships, our world. It's a way of developing healthier relationships that bring more joy and satisfaction, more meaning, less stress. It's a way of understanding our place in the world and learning how to make the best use of the time and the energy that we have. And so the meditation practice is kind of like this, this leverage point or this fulcrum within that whole way of life. In some sense, you could say it's part of the underpinning because it's, it's looking at and getting to the root of how we perceive ourselves in the world, the very mechanisms internally, that structure our life, the ways we view ourselves, the ideas we have, the preconceived notions we have about life, relationships, one another, the biases that we carry. So it's start, the meditation practice starts to reveal all of that. And as we understand more clearly the ways in which our mind and heart are functioning, we, we, we can navigate, we can steer, we learn, oh, okay, when I think in these ways, when I act in these ways, when I believe these thoughts, that makes it harder for me and others. So the meditation practice itself is a whole series of tools or techniques to understand our mind and also to shape, to shape our heart and mind. One of the analogies that I like to, um, that I appreciate very much for meditation practice is that it's like a craft, you know. So if you've ever had a hobby or an art or a craft, you know that it takes time. It's good to apprentice with someone who knows what they're doing. Um, And there can be a lot of joy in learning, in learning that craft, in learning that art. And as with any craft, it's helpful and I would even say necessary to make sure that you're starting from the right place. Yeah, so uh, last year I, I took a ceramics class at the Richmond Art Center. 
near where I live, just for fun, just to kind of do something differently. And um, it's a wonderful analogy for working with meditation and working with the mind and the heart. When you when you do ceramics, you you have to work the clay first. You have to wedge it. You have to prepare it. You have to make sure that you get all the air bubbles out, that you soften it up. Um, then if you're working on a wheel, you have to center the clay, which is actually takes a lot of a lot of work, a lot of learning to figure out as this kind of wheel is spinning and this big lump of earth is on there, how to actually get it in the center so that you can work with it. And, and part of that centering the clay is using your body's weight. It's using your whole body, not just your hands, and making sure that you're sitting properly and you're actually really contacting the clay and being able to move and sense it with your body. And if you don't do that, if you don't prepare the clay well, if you don't center it, it's very difficult to work with it. And when you fire it, it could break or crack, it have problems. So in meditation, it's very similar. We want to start from a solid foundation. We want to make sure that we're approaching it in a way that's going to be the most supportive and conducive. And so this is what I'd like to explore tonight. Within this whole way of life, that the Buddhist path offers, this, this one fulcrum of meditation practice, what are the essential supports? What are the things that need to be in place first before we begin contemplative practice or as we begin contemplative practice? Just one other uh, really accessible analogy in terms of like preparing beforehand. Just think about picking up something heavy. Right, if you're going to pick something heavy up and you don't actually like squat down and take a deep breath and straighten your back, what's going to happen? Right? If you just kind of like hunch over and try to yank it up, you could slip a disc, strain a muscle. Right? So again, that just that sense of before we engage in something that's important, that's meaningful, that requires our energy and focus and attention, how do, we, how do we prepare the ground? How do we create those conditions? So I want to talk tonight about five different factors that, in my experience, are essential supports or foundations for contemplative practice. So I'll say what they are first, just to give you the list, the overview, and then I'll talk about each one. So the first is safety. The second is a sense of groundedness. The third is friendship or community. The fourth is kindness. And the last is interest. So, safety. This is one of our most basic core needs as human beings to know that we're safe. Very, very difficult to look inwards, to study the mind, to quiet the mind, if we're preoccupied with not feeling safe. Physically, emotionally, psychologically. 
This is one of the reasons why when I practice and teach meditation, I always encourage people to begin by orienting, by just looking around the environment and finding things that help us to feel safe in the environment. Letting our body know where we are. Letting our organism actually register, okay, I'm here, no one's abusing me, no one's giving me dirty looks, hopefully. (laughs) Seriously. Um, And letting the body take in where we are. So the Buddha talked a lot about the three refuges. The Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. This is one of the reasons why the path and the practice starts with a sense of refuge. Where do we find safety? Where do we find that sense of knowing that we're okay? It's also one of the reasons why um, many meditation communities, particularly Spirit Rock, Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast, over the last number of years are putting more and more resources and energy towards diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Particularly for white teachers like myself, learning about unconscious racism, white superiority. How do we create a space that is safe enough? Right. So for me, living in a male body, having white skin, I've been, tra- I've been trained the society around me reflects a sense of safety. The people who I interface with every day, if I want to, I can interface with people who look like me. Right? Many, many people in our country and our communities don't have that privilege. How, how can this space of spirit rock be a spiritual refuge for everyone? Right? Where when anyone comes here, there's a sense of feeling welcomed, belonging. And what, what is the work for each of us to do in terms of being a member of a community to learn the ways in which we each carry biases simply from having grown up in this culture with, with the history that's here in the United States of racism and attempted genocide? How do we, how do we learn in ourselves how to move past those biases and unconscious conditioning? so that we can feel a sense of safety in ourselves and offer that safety to one another. This is why the practice of the five precepts is also a foundation for contemplative practice. The precepts, the the five mindfulness trainings, the ethical guidelines for living are about creating safety. It's said that when one practices the precepts, one gives the gift of safety to other beings. Let none fear me. What a powerful thing to take on as a deep intention in life. Let none fear me. Particularly for those of us who belong to the dominant groups in society. Yeah. You know, so again, living in a male body with the history of violence against women. It's a very, very deep intention of mine. You know, to live with a sense of care and respect gentleness. So how do we create the conditions of safety? Is that in place? And if we don't feel safe, 
What do we need to do to feel safe enough? Right? Because safety is an illusion. The world is not safe. <laughs> right? This is not news to any of us. So there's that sense of what's safe enough? Right? Where do you feel at ease and safe? Is it out in nature? Is it in your, in your home? Is it with certain people? Right? And finding that place, finding those conditions. Yeah? How are you going to settle down? How are you going to really look inside and consider the meaningful questions of being alive? If part of your nervous system is continually checking, everything okay, right? And so one of the, one of the results of uh, the society and the culture that we live in today is that um, even when things are safe enough around us, we, we, we carry with us the, the signals of threat or danger. They become internal and psychological, like the boss getting on us again. You're going to be late on that report. You're going to get it to me on time. You didn't do it right last time. And this, the, the internal alarm is going off all the time. So how do we start to shift out of that sense of kind of like this low-grade panic to feel a sense of safety, to find refuge? And this is the, the invitation of taking refuge in the Buddha. Not the, not the statue, not the person, but the sense of awareness. Buddha means awake. When we are aware, that gives us a sense of freedom and choice. To see is the beginning of freedom. To see clearly, that's the first step of transformation. So just even beginning to be aware of whatever's happening in the moment, just as it is. Can we begin to establish some sense of safety internally? I remember, um, for me, very, very important instructive experience in this around around safety and really taking it in not not just on an intellectual level but but on a on a physical level like in my tissues this was um about 15 or 16 years ago i was living at the insight meditation society on the east coast uh working as a cook there and um I developed a chronic health condition at that time and um, was dealing with a lot of physical distress in my body, was not well or healthy. And at that particular time, I was about 25, I was kind of, I was pretty freaked out by what was happening and didn't really know how to take care of it or how to get well. And I went to see this one body worker who was, he was just a body worker but also kind of a healer in some ways and I, I still remember to this day uh, this one moment where I'm so I'm, you know she's got like this massage table and I'm lying on the table and She's standing next to me, 
And very slowly I feel her hand just very slowly begin to make contact with the side of my shoulder until there's this very steady pressure just right there on the side of my shoulder. It was like something inside started to relax. Like, oh, there's someone there. Just the sense of steady, reassuring presence, making contact. And it was like something in my whole nervous system just started to let go and organize and soften and slow down a little bit. Just getting that message through the contact of like, if I had to put words to it, it was saying, it's okay. Right, like that sense when you're with a friend and they're freaking out or something and you put your hand on someone's shoulder, you're like, hey, you look them in the eyes, it's all right. So this is the first foundation of contemplative practice is finding that in yourself, that, that place inside that knows there's some sense of it's safe enough. I can settle here, I can relax here. But find what that is for you whether it's a memory, a childhood memory, a place, a person, a song, your pet, a stone, what helps you touch that place? Because without that, it's just an uphill battle. The next foundation is a sense of groundedness, and this flows very naturally out of the sense of safety. And this is Again, in the meditation that we just did, we started with orienting, establishing some safety, and then finding your center. The mind is just bananas. (laughs) There's a wonderful passage from a book by Bhante Gunaratna. I think it's in um, his book, Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness, where I'm going to paraphrase it, but he says something to the effect of there there comes a time where you realize that your mind is like a a crazy person barreling down a hill in a wheelbarrow with no brakes. (laughs) So just like in the madness of, of our own mind and the plans and the thoughts and the memories and the judgments and the confusion and all of it, how do, we, how do we touch into something that's a little bit more stable and steady? There's a very powerful analogy in the early texts. So the Buddha talks about the... Um, in, in Buddhism, there are not five, but six senses. There's the five senses that we usually think of, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. And then the sixth sense is the heart, heart-mind, consciousness. So thinking memory, emotion. He says that these these six senses are like six different animals. A snake, um, a wolf, uh, a rooster, a pig, kind of, and they're all tied together with ropes. And whichever one is strongest in any one moment pulls all the other ones along. And this is what 
the unenlightened life is like. We're just continually pulled around by our senses. Oh, that's interesting. I'll look at that. Oh, that smells good. No, I think I'll taste some of that. You know, and like, oh, let's think about that. And kind of like whatever sort of stimulation in the moment happens to be most intense, pleasant or unpleasant, we go towards it and we're just yanked around, yanked around, yanked around all day long. So the analogy that the Buddha uses, he says, mindfulness of the body is like planting a firm stake in the ground. And all of those senses, all the ropes that they're tied to are tied to that stake. However hard they pull, they can't go anywhere because they're tied to that stake. That's mindfulness of the body. It gives us that, that firm center. So this is the next foundation for contemplative practice. I call it finding your ground. Very simple, very accessible, just feeling the weight of the body. Your butt on the chair, your feet on the floor. And it's like whatever is happening. The direct experience of being right here. You can't argue with it just feeling that. And we can always come back there. We can always come back to that simplicity of gravity, of weight, of the contact with the earth that says you belong. You're here. When the Buddha sat underneath the fig tree, the Bodhi tree, in the plains of central India, and in what's now called Buddha Gaya, named after, after his awakening, the night of his enlightenment, in the kind of most difficult, darkest moments of his quest for understanding and freedom, when he was beset by doubt, and fear. The, the texts kind of personify it as armies of demons attacking his mind. Just imagine the kind of like worst nightmarish visions and fears that we could experience. In that moment of um, facing his his deepest demons and darkest fears. This is this is the mudra that he makes. He reaches down with one hand and touches the earth for support, for strength, to claim his right to freedom and awakening with the earth as his witness. Very powerful, very powerful gesture. That sense of ground. There's something here holding us on this planet. Much larger than any one of us. And we can feel it if we slow down, if we listen. We can actually sense it in our body that support, that weight. So finding that, making space for that. You know, when you come to your practice, is it like, all right, let's go, meditate, get to the breath. (laughs) 
right? There's this way in which we can we, we carry that momentum of like, do it, do it, do it, get it right, do it better, more efficient, into our meditation practice, rather than actually slowing down, okay, like, where am I starting from? Do I feel safe? Am I still like tripping out about that email I got or that phone conversation? You know? Meditation practice is a process of discovering what's already here, not of creating something new. It's a process of arriving, arriving in our own skin. And so the direction is the direction is is this way, not this way. And so we go in and down. We start from that sense of being here, finding the ground, finding your center. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, just as a mountain is not stirred by the wind, so the mind of a sage is not stirred by the winds of the world, by praise and blame, success and failure. That sense of the steadiness of a mountain. So this is the second foundation of contemplative practice, touching the earth, claiming that sense of taking our seat, finding our center, and feeling your ground. So these first two start to to create the, um, the space, the conditions for being able to, to turn within and contemplate. The next foundation is about relationship, friendship and community. So just as safety is one of our core needs as human beings, a close second in terms of core human needs for human beings is belonging. To feel that we belong, to know that there are those around who care for us, with whom we feel connected. I'm going to read you a quote from uh, Mother Teresa. This is from a, a book called In the Heart of the World. She said, There is much suffering in the world, very much. Material suffering, suffering from hunger, suffering from homelessness, from all kinds of disease. But... I still think that the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. And she's pointing to that deep need to belong to know that we matter, to feel connected. And I think the Buddha was well aware of this. Throughout the texts, he places great emphasis on friendship and community. Those of you who have, you know, studied or practiced for some time know that in addition to, you know, in the the three refuges, there's the Buddha, the Dhamma, the teachings, the truth, the path, And the Sangha, the community, that sense of relationship, being in a community itself is a refuge. 
when we feel that sense of connection, friendship, and belonging, it softens the heart and mind. Relationship takes me outside, out of myself. When I have a relationship with you, I'm not so obsessed with me. When I care for you, all of the, all of the preoccupations can just quiet down a little bit. So this is why the whole path, all of the teachings, they begin with relationship. When people would come to the Buddha and ask him to teach them, he wouldn't start like, okay, sit down, cross your legs, yeah, okay, now sit up straight, yeah, okay, follow your breath. He would say, go out and practice generosity. Give, give to people and see how that feels and then come back and talk to me. Establish a connection. Notice how it feels to give. Find your sense of belonging in place. It's also important to recognize that 2,600 years ago in ancient India, um, the society was structured very differently than here in the United States today. You know, people were deeply embedded in their family and their village and their clan. It's a very, very sense, a very uh, strong sense of, of community bonds. That was a given. So when the Buddha emphasized solitude, go off by yourself, it's within a context of feeling deeply connected and belonging and knowing one's place, one's family, one's, one's kin. One of the, you know, one of the hallmarks of modern Western culture is the sense of alienation and disconnection. And so this, we need to start to actually recognize and heal that to some degree to create the conditions for introspection. Otherwise, it's just that sense of I'm on my own, all alone. No different than what I'm suffering with every day. When we feel a sense of connection and community, ah, when I close my eyes, when I sit with myself, I'm not alone. There are people who love me, who care for me, who I'm connected to. If I need help, I know who to go to. That contributes to the sense of safety. And it leads in to the next, the next essential foundation. just say one other one other thing about um, about friendship the many many places in the early texts where the Buddha ex- extols the benefits of having good friends and wise companions in life and he says that uh, he said I don't see any other single thing external to oneself like friendship with wise people that's more conducive to realizing the fruit of awakening. I don't see any other single thing outside of one's own heart and mind like friendship with wise people that's more conducive to helping us realize the fruit of this path. When one has a good friend, one cultivates the the Noble Eightfold Path. When one has a good friend, one cultivates the skillful and abandons the unskillful. 
he said that the presence of a good friend, he say that a different way, he said that um, just as the dawn is the precursor for the rising of the sun, so too having a wise friend is the precursor for the development of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's that important. It signals the beginning of, of, of our awakening. So just think about why you're sitting here in this room. Or if you're at home, if you're watching this, why you're watching this. Is there anyone here who's not here because of another person? A friend, a teacher, a mentor, a book, a podcast? What sets us on this path is a relationship. It's called the voice of another in the texts. Something wakes us up. Something says, oh, that sounds interesting. I'm going to check that out. Maybe there's something here for me. So this is the next foundation of contemplative practice is friendship, community, with admirable, wise companions, taking care with who we surround ourselves with. So this, this too leads in to the next quality that's, a, that's an essential support for contemplative practice, and that's kindness. So one of the things that we experience, that we learn in relationship and friendship is kindness. What's the definition of having a friend, right? It's someone who, with whom we feel and experience that sense of care and warmth. Someone who shows care towards us and for whom we feel care. So those relationships of friendship in community water the seed of kindness. They help us remember that innate capacity that we have for care and friendliness. And we can be so hard on ourselves, often much harsher with oneself than we are with, with others. This is from um, uh, the beginning of, um, of a book by Ajahn Buddhadasa that, that Jack edited. This is from Jack's introduction to that book. Uh, the heartwood of the Bodhi tree. Uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa was one of the great Thai forest meditation masters of the last century and um, uh, very uh, well-respected and renowned uh, meditator and also scholar. And his, his monastery was called Swan Mok. So Jack writes, Ajahn Buddhadasa spoke of the healing power of the trees and walkways of Swanmok. When I asked him how so many Westerners who begin spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred can best approach this practice, he replied simply with two suggestions. First, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of loving-kindness. Then they should be taken out into nature, into beautiful forests or mountains. They must stay there long enough to realize that they too are part of nature. 
They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place in the midst of things. So what's the atmosphere? What's the inner atmosphere that we create, that we bring to our contemplative practice? Is it this sense of kindness, the sense of belonging that I was speaking about with friendship and community, the sense of belonging Ajahn Buddha Dasa refers to and the sense of connection with nature? Or is there self-criticism, ill will, not good enough, self-hatred? My, uh, one of my teachers, Ajahn Suchito, says, goodwill is the atmosphere, the whole atmosphere of our practice. It's what you sit in. What else are you going to sit in? Ill will? Right? That's what it's like sometimes. If the mind is soured by ill will, then we go to sit. It's just like sitting in this blech, right? So when we come to our meditation practice, what's the space we're creating for ourselves? Is it infused with that sense of kindness? The Buddha said, I visited all quarters of the cosmos with my mind and I did not find any dearer than oneself, than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. One who loves oneself will never harm another. That sense of searching throughout the whole cosmos, not finding anyone else more deserving of one's own love than oneself. So can we start there? This is not easy. I want to be clear. Because we've had a lot of conditioning, a lot of training to beat ourselves up as a strategy to get the sense of belonging, right? If I beat myself up, if I put myself down, Either I'm going to protect myself before other people can do it, or I'll fit in. So we're working against often years of conditioning here. And what can happen is that the meditation practice becomes another way that I'm not good enough. Or it becomes a way I'm finally going to fix myself. I'll finally be okay. I'll finally be good enough. I'll finally be acceptable. I'll be smart enough, I'll be sharp enough, or clever enough, or kind enough, or whatever. That's a hopeless project. The personality is a hopeless case. It's not going to get, it's not going to get fixed. Give up now. (laughs) You'll save yourself a lot of grief. We're all basket cases. So meditation is not a self-improvement project. It's a process of understanding and of letting go, of putting aside the things that are extra, of putting down the burden that we're carrying, the burden of what we should be, of what we weren't, of what we'll never be, the burden of the past. 
How long are we going to carry it? How heavy is it? What's it take to put it down? That's what this path is about. That's what it's teaching us. And that's a tremendous act of compassion and kindness. It's not, it doesn't happen through judgment. So this is the next foundation for our contemplative practice is kindness. Finding that sense, finding that. It's not always easy to find, but it's there. It's there because it's innate. And this is why metta practice, loving kindness practice, is such a wonderful support for the contemplative path because it it helps us remember how to find kindness when we forget it. So the last aspect, we started with safety, finding our ground, friendship, community, belonging, kindness. The last foundation for contemplative practice is again about our motivation. So one motivation that's very important is kindness, bringing that attitude, that quality, and the other is interest, genuine interest. So again, rather than trying to fix or change or control or judge our experience, just wanting to understand. The pure exploration. What is this experience of being alive? Why am I so why am I so tripped up on this? Why do I keep getting caught here? How do I How do I relax? Why can't I just be at peace right now? What's getting in the way of that? Not because you're so anxious and you're always going to be anxious and you're never going to be good enough. That's why you can't be at peace. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's thinking. What's getting in the way of me just resting? It's interesting. That sense of, of curiosity, of wanting to understand. The whole path that Buddha talked about, this whole path, this, this word in the Pali language, ehipasiko, which means, check it out. <laughs> That's probably the most accurate vernacular translation. Check it out. Or, come on in. That's another translation. Come on in. Check it out. Look and see. See for yourself. What's here? Right? How's the mind work? Why do we get so stressed out? How come we how come we snap at other people? Why can't we just be like, oh, sorry you're having such a bad day. <laughs> it's not my stuff. You know? Why do we get caught? Check it out. Have a look. That quality of interest, of wanting to understand exploration, adventure. This is, this is the proper attitude or intention for spiritual practice. I'll tell you one more, one more short story here about, about this, um, this quality of interest. I was very fortunate when I was in my 20s, I got to go to Japan and uh, do some Zen practice um, on a study abroad program. 
And we went to this one little zendo out in the countryside for a short session, like, I don't know, five days or six days. And um, there's just maybe like a dozen of us. And we would sit every day in the zendo. And uh, in the evening, all the lights would be out, the candles burning. And uh, this Rinzai Zen master, who spoke very broken English, would give instructions. And so we're sitting there, you know, doing zazen, which was very, very formal. You're kind of sitting up very straight in this particular form and uh, counting, counting breaths. And he's, he's giving some instructions. So it's quiet and dark, the candlelight. And he says in this very, very deep voice, this kind of broken English, Who am I? What am I? What is this? we bring this quality of complete openness and not knowing to the moment. This is a very, very universal question in in many, many spiritual traditions. Who am I? What am I? Not because there's an answer, but because there's value in asking the question. And it's that question, that, that humility to not know opens the door to transformation. So I'll stop here for tonight. I offer these thoughts for your reflection and consideration. I hope it's useful. So this is... Um, the first part in a two-part series. I'll be back next Monday talking about how to sustain our energy on the spiritual path. Today we're talking about the foundations, and next Monday I'll talk about um, how to sustain our energy, which is a very important part of contemplative practice. So um, we have about 10 minutes if there are any questions about the talk or about your practice that you'd like to ask. So if you have a question, just raise your hand and one of the volunteers will bring a microphone over to you so that it's easy for, uh, for folks to hear. Make sure the mic's on first. Okay, great. Hi, thank you. You're welcome. In the beginning, I'll have to paraphrase it and maybe you can pull it together for me, but Mm -hmm. you said um, you were referring to something along the lines of opening up the self-knowledge to not, to let others in. Is Mm -hmm. that... 
Yeah, so uh, when I was talking about uh, friendship and community, so when I have a relationship with you, that takes me out of my sense of self-centeredness. Even right now, to talk to you, to look at you, to say words, to see you nodding slightly, I'm less preoccupied with my own thoughts or the fact that it's a little warm under these lights or, you know, because I'm focusing on you. So relationship, by def- being in relationship, begins to soften the sense of self because we, we, we move beyond the boundary. There's like, oh, there's someone else there. And th- thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. And there was also another thought as you were saying that and that many times I will try to use that awareness to develop that openness but be confused when I'm perhaps not seeing it straight or feeling a sense of um, difficulty Mm -hmm. in breaking down the wall Mm -hmm. of that. And perhaps it just reinforces what you said that, you know, one cannot hold that in oneself. One has to continue to be open. Mm -hmm. Yeah, relationships are complicated, right? And um, certainly we experience... (laughs) Difficulty and fear and anger and confusion, resentment and pain and all of all of that. That's part of being human. Um, the the kind of suggestion that I'm making is that um, ensuring that we have um, or doing our best to find at least one or two connections in our life that feel supportive. A particular, qual- a particular quality of relationship, friendship, community. Those are, those are essential for spiritual practice. Right? Not the person that, you're, that you've been fighting with for the last 10 years. That's also a very helpful part of spiritual practice, but it's not the foundation. <laughs> That's what you use your practice to work with. The foundation are the relationships that help you to feel seen and safe and loved and cared for. The people in your life who reflect back to you your goodness, the sense that you're okay just the way you are, you're enough, that let us see our our beautiful qualities that sometimes can be hard for us to take in. You know, like, oh yeah, I am generous. Oh yeah, I can be really kind. That's true. So those are the relationships that we want to... um, really notice and give time and energy to because they help us to recognize our good qualities and draw on them as a support and create that inner atmosphere of kindness and well-being that's so essential for contemplative practice. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. How's everybody doing? Is it late? Are we tired? Yeah? Okay. Why don't, why don't we, why don't we uh, close our evening? I'll just make a couple of announcements here. Um, I want to let you know 
um, about two or three things uh, that are just uh, invitations. So first, if you enjoy the way I teach and speak about things and you would like to stay in touch or you would like to learn more, um, I, would, I would really enjoy that. And the best way to do that is through my email list. I send out a couple of emails a month. Um, when you sign up, you get a free guided meditation series and a free ebook on contemplative practice that I wrote. Um, so there are two ways to do that. One is right through your cell phone by text message. So if you send a text message to the number 44222 with the word guided, like guided meditation, it'll walk you through the steps to sign up for my email list. So I'll say it again for anyone who wants it. The number is 44222, and the word is guided. Or you can print your email address on the clipboard out on the table. Um, but you have to print it, otherwise I won't be able to read it, and you won't get my emails. Um, and then there are uh, two programs coming up that I want to let you know about. So one, um, for those of you who are familiar with or interested in my new book, Say What You Mean, um, I'm teaching a 12-week online course um, going through the book, looking at communication and relationship, kind of one section at a time. Uh, it just started this week, so registration still open if you want to join, and there's some uh, half-page yellow flyers out there uh, for the course um, so feel free to check that out if it's of interest to you. There are scholarships and group discounts. If you would like to take the course, I want you to be there. Finances don't need to be a barrier. Uh, and then the second thing is um, next month in February over President's Day weekend, I'm teaching a five-day retreat uh, here outside of Santa Cruz with my colleague Roxy Manning on nonviolent communication. Um, it's called the Living Peace Retreat, and we still have three or four spots open. So if you're interested in uh, improving your communication skills um, and the online course thing is not your speed and you're local and you want to go and do a retreat in person, this would be a great opportunity. So, And then there are also some other flyers for other events and retreats coming up later this year. So thanks so much again for, uh, for being here. I'll be back next Monday night. And maybe let's just close um, with a moment of quiet together and offering the, the merit and goodness of our time. I invite you to acknowledge the beautiful intentions that brought us together tonight. desire for learning, for growth, for understanding, whatever it is in you made you choose to come. So may the benefits, insight, and learning from our time together today grow in each of us and be a source of strength, love, and wisdom for ourselves, for our families and communities. And may the ripples of that understanding spread out far and wide that there may be more peace, more safety, and more freedom 
for all people and all creatures on this planet. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great week, and maybe I'll see you back here next Monday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.